Welcome into another episode of the Ots and Audibles podcast. Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on this show. Matt Prem, unfortunately, under the weather, non-COVID-related illness, though, tested negative, so that's a positive, but will not be joining us for today's show. Jared, we're going to be talking about, I think, something that will uh, be pretty interesting for the fans to listen to, which is our, our top takeaways per position group, and we're now seeing about 10 spring practices, and I don't know about you, but I feel like we've actually got some, some thoughts to get into today. Yeah, I definitely have some thoughts to get into. We've seen enough, at least in like short, short little spurts of 11 on 11, where we have some general takeaways. Um, I think we're going to start with the defensive line. So I'll, I'll handle that. Um, in case the listeners don't know, Eric handles offense during the spring practices and I handle defense just in a general observations. Um, but jumping into the D line, I think it's – I'll just quickly note who was the first group because apparently Dan Lanning and company don't have teams yet, like the first stringers. So the first group of a defensive line that were on the field in the last 11-11 scrimmage or a little fastball section, as they call it, was Trevin Mai, Sam Taimani, Suava Podi, and Braden Swinson. So just general observations on the defensive line, it's really hard to make because Oregon's three best defensive linemen are still out due to injury in – Popo Amavai, uh, Keon Ware-Hudson, and Brandon Dorless. Um, so I think that's a really good place to start, is that this that starting group that I just mentioned of my Taimani, Pody, and Swinson probably isn't your first team defensive line come September 2nd or 3rd when Oregon plays Georgia. I think that's pretty obvious. Um, but the good part of that is to see that Sam Taimani has – kind of worked his way up. I remember he was on, spe- on second team or second group the first time we saw a fastball portion of the practice. Now he's up to the first group that comes out on the field. Um, and that's basically where I would expect him to be. There's a decent chance that he starts the season, just depending on the health of other defensive linemen, or just the fact that he's, you know, a, a, a guy who's been through the Pac-12 for a couple of years now at Washington. Um, now he comes in and, and provides another body up front. Um, I would imagine if I were to make a hypothetical depth chart for the first game of the season, I would have Dorless and Popo in front, but that's just me. Um, and when we look at Trevin Mai and Braden Swinson, um, I still think it's a really good storyline about how, how much Trevin Mai has improved um, both on the field and off the field in terms of his physicality and his weight. Um, Cause he, you know, he came in to Oregon, it just, I don't remember the specific number, but, you know, nowhere near where he's at now. I'd say last year he mentioned that he probably added 35 to 40 pounds since coming to Oregon. I would say that he's probably added more, but it's all looks like really good weight. He looks physically ready. Um, I'm just interested to see where he's playing this year in terms of how many downs, because last year it seemed like he was only a rundown defensive lineman, but it's good to see him out there. And Swinson obviously is, is a returner, a guy who's going to be the primary pass rusher, someone who you hope can fill some of the void that is left by Kayvon Thibodeau. Although those are some, some big shoes to fill. One could say that. Um, other than that, I think this is probably one of the deepest uh, position groups for Oregon this year. Obviously the three guys who are not healthy right now are, are huge to this. Um, I will make note that, we really haven't seen Christian Williams. Uh, I don't know if we've seen him at all. Um, just going back through some of the attendance that we've taken down, it doesn't seem like he's with the team right now. 
Uh, Dan Lanning said it's in like an await and see scenario, whatever that means. Uh, so, but overall, I think the defensive line is going to be an impactful portion of the defense, um, kind of has to be. But, you know, Atash Lupo and, and Tony Tuioti, uh, you know, from what they've said, they've seen some good strides out of some kids this, this spring camp. Um, DJ Johnson's a name that keeps bringing brought up. Uh, he's now a full-time defensive lineman. You know, we've seen him in drills. Looks like he's slimmed down. Looks like he's in a more defensive lineman, uh, like, body compared to where he was last year, converting between tight end and defensive line. But I think it's going to be a good group. It's going to be a, a, a one that I think I'll study a lot during the spring game and, you know, some footage afterwards. But, Eric, I'll toss it over to you. We'll you know, I, do uh, – with I, the quarterbacks? I just had a thought uh, to follow yeah, go for it. I think it's kind of notable that we're talking about four-man fronts um, today rather than three-man fronts, which is – I know there was yeah. some, some lack of clarity at times about what exactly Oregon was running before because KT had a hand down. Sometimes he didn't. But we've seen – and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like largely four people, large men, hands in the dirt when they've been running through stuff. And that is a slight deviation from previous uh, schemes. And – I know they talk about wanting to be notable. Uh, sorry, uh, multiple up front. I just mm-hmm. think hearing you run through that, I th- and, and I will note, like both Trevin, I, Braden Swinson, guys who were primarily not playing with a hand down. I don't know if either really did it all last year. Like I just think you're seeing structurally, schematically, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on any of that. Slight alterations here, which are going to make for a defense that looks a little different under Dan Lanning and Tosh Lupoy but one that I think will, will really give offenses in the Pac-12 fits because I think they're going to throw a lot of things at people that maybe they haven't been used to seeing. Yeah, that's the other portion of it all. Um, James Kreppi of the Oregonian has had a lot of little conversations with Dan Lanning about simulated pressure. Right. Um, that just, for the, for the very, very basics of it, it's just a, you know putting pressure on the quarterback through different areas, like from linebacker blitzes or corner or safety blitzes, something like that. Um, but we've really only seen... Four, four down linemen. Um, Braden Swinson kind of goes back and forth, at least with a hand down or up. Same with Trevin Mai, but that's kind of what you'd expect from that edge rusher. Um, we've also seen just once with like five really big linemen out there with, with basically as the first group of my Taimani, Pody, and Swinson uh, just swapped Swinson out for Johnson. And then there was Mace Funa in there when Oregon ran a 12 personnel set in one of the fastball uh, 11 on 11 portions with two tight ends. Um, I mean, that, that's something that we'll get into later, but that's the only time that I've really only that I've seen more than four defensive linemen, but I don't think we saw anything like that last year. Um, And that was, you know, basically just a package situation going against two tight ends, but still for, for Mace Funa and, my and DJ Johnson to be on the field at the same time is, is pretty interesting. And I wonder how often Oregon is going to run that this season. I just love that we're seeing it in spring and, and I don't know, yeah. like, we, we don't want to give away all the trade secrets and I'm sure that they're aware of the fact that we're out there and that they aren't showing everything, but I think you can expect Oregon to just throw a lot of different things at offenses. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's cool that Oregon is at times practicing or that we've seen at times in practice, like, they are in 12 personnel on offense and you see what the defense does to adapt to it. Um, those kind of things are like kind of small, you know, they don't feel like big components of practice, but they're, I think that it's telling for how detail oriented the staff is and, and wanting to put like real situations on the field that the defense has to, or the offense has to adapt to. Um, so that's just like a big spring overall kind of takeaway. And we'll have more of that 
probably once uh, we get through the spring game. But I, there's a lot of these like kind of little like details. I feel like they're just being kind of considered more some of the situationally um, than than previously. At least we're seeing it more more effectively mm-hmm. when we watch practice. Okay, uh, wanted to jump into quarterback talk here, and I think for me the most interesting thing is like this is actually uh, a competition. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes, <laughs> and like I, I think back to the last two springs when there's been an open competition, quote unquote. And I'm not saying they haven't been, but we basically never saw anyone but the first team person with the first team. Like it was Tyler Shuck, and I know we had spring shortened and fall was closed because of COVID. But like it was reported that like basically Tyler Shuck was the guy the whole way through, and that there wasn't a whole lot of deviation in terms of rotating other quarterbacks with the first group. Same thing was the case last year with Anthony Brown. Again, we had some limited access to watching stuff. But what we heard and what we saw with our own eyes when we did get a watch was that was the truth, was Anthony Brown was the one, and Ty Thompson and Jay Butterfield rotated behind him with Robbie Ashford. So going into this spring, I think it's somewhat notable that we've already seen Ty Thompson with the ones. We've seen Bo Nix now with the ones, I think, most frequently. We've seen Jay Butterfield with the twos and Ty Thompson's with the threes. Like we've seen, I mean, Ty Thompson's been with the first, second, and third team at different, you know, periods of a fastball. That's, that feels significant and it feels different. And I, I think it gives us an indication that this is not like lip service competition. And I'm not going to say that Mario Cristobal and Joe Moorhead in the past, you know, didn't conduct an actual quarterback competition because I'm sure they were very much they may, it would behoove them to really vet the prospects and figure out who's the best candidate for the job I just feel like this year it like we're seeing at least indications and we're hearing it as well from I mean Chase Coda had like I got a story up on the site on I think that was Wednesday of just some of his comments regarding kind of the competition battle and saying like he doesn't really feel like there's really one player separating I think Dante Thornton said something a little similar on Thursday during media. So I, I get a sense that this is like a real competition and, uh, you know, and, and that we're going to probably see a lot of different, just like we talked about earlier, uh, a bunch of different kind of variations of defensive fronts and personnel packages this year. I think in the spring game, you can expect to see the quarterbacks be split rep wise and probably working with different groups. Like I don't anticipate it's just Bo Nix is with the first team offense and Ty Thompson is with the twos, et cetera. I think we'll see some sort of mix and match with that group. I think that's going to be kind of fun to see and, and hopefully give us a pretty good idea going into the offseason of kind of where things stand um, with everybody being on kind of an even footing or as close to an even footing as possible with position groups and personnel around them. Um, do you have anything on quarterback? I, I know we don't want to jump too much into talking about the different groups because those podcasts will last two hours and, and Jared has a baseball game to go cover, but quarterback is such a big one like is there anything else that sort of stood out for you when you've been out there I think I think you covered covered it all in terms of it being like a real competition and again this isn't to say that the other staff didn't have real competitions because I'm sure they did but it never felt like it every time we'd watch practice it would be Anthony Brown with the ones Um, I wasn't here to watch the uh, Tyler Shuck era at Oregon football but you know just from from the practice reports and everything like that, it did seem like Chuck was, was the guy before the season and was the guy during the season. And not a lot of things were going to change anybody's minds in the, in, in not the dugout, but <laughs> in the HTC, it didn't seem like anybody's minds were going to change. Um, but yeah, it's been interesting to note that Ty Thompson has played with every group. Jay Butterfield has been with the twos and the threes. Bo Nix has been with the ones and the twos, primarily with the ones um, it shows that there is some real sort of competition going on. 
uh, really trying to get the most out of each of the quarterbacks, which I think was, which I think is really important because there seemed to be some sort of narrative that when Bo Nix came along and picked Oregon as his transfer destination to come back with Kenny Dillingham, like that the keys to the car were just going to be handed to him. And Bo Nix might be the starting quarterback in the start of the season. He might not be, but it's going to be because Kenny Dillingham and staff are going through this competition and really believing that whoever is the starter deserves to be the starter. Um, I don't think it's going to be an easy decision though. And that's the other thing about this is that Ty Thompson has shown, we've seen it in practice. We've seen a lot of good things from a lot, all the quarterbacks, um, like you said earlier, Dante Thornton had very similar sentiments to say about the quarterback room and that all of them are good. Just as simple as that, that they're all good quarterbacks. They all can do things. Um, in the last couple of weeks, we've heard a lot of really good stuff about Jay Butterfield, who is by a majority. And I would say, including me seen as the third guy, like that he's, you know, not out of the competition, but it's, it seems like a two horse race with Ty Thompson, Bo Nix, but we've been hearing a lot of good thing about Jay Butterfield. So this will be interesting. This will be fun to watch at the spring game. Um, it makes me feel like we're there, that the audience is going to get a lot of a lot of plays with all three quarterbacks. And I think that's going to be a lot of fun to watch, a lot of fun to kind of decipher in the film afterwards. Um, but, yeah, I, I think the quarterback room is, is going to be the storyline, obviously, as the, as the offseason eventually comes after the spring game. But I think that's that's all I have in the quarterbacks. I think it's kind of just um, you know repetitive of what you said, but I think it's going to be a fun competition just to watch kind of play out. Linebacker time. What do you got? Let's do it. So I'll start like I did with the defensive linemen. Um, we've seen the last spring practice where we saw an eleven on eleven portion. We had Jeffrey Bossa and Noah Sewell as your starting linebackers, or excuse me, first group linebackers. Um, <laughs> this is, of course. Sands, Justin Flo, who is still returning from an injury. Uh, I will note that the last spring practice that we got to see, which was yesterday, Justin Flo had, I mean, there were no pads, but he has, he had a shell on, he had his neck plate on. He seemed a little more jazzed up, a little more into it going through the rehab drills. I think he's, maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm reading the tea leaves too much, really going in depth in them, but he, he had a little, little more pep in his step, which makes me feel like he might be coming back to participating in drills, things like that. Dan Lanning also didn't rule him out for the spring game, which I think is interesting considering it's, it's, it's in eight days. It's going to be a week by the time some of you guys listen to this podcast. So that's, that's just it with him. Um, if, if he were healthy, I would assume that he and Noah Sewell will be the linebacking duo to start the season. I think that's the best chance at building an elite defense with those two guys. But Jeffrey Bassa is pretty good in his own right. Um, we've seen him, or I've seen him go between the first and the second group in terms of who's, who's playing at linebacker. Uh, Jackson LaDuke has been with the one, the first group with Noah Sewell. Noah Sewell is like locked. It's like if you play or lock on him, you're going to be the first team linebacker. Um, that second spot has been filled by Jackson LaDuke or Jeffrey Bassa. Uh, second group is usually Keith Brown and Jackson LaDuke or Jeffrey Bassa. Um, the third group is usually a Harrison Taggart or Devin Jackson or Adrian Jackson or Micah Roth. Um, this is another really loaded group when everybody is healthy. I think you have two 
potential All-Americans in Justin Flo and Noah Sewell. And if you can have them on the field at the same time, they're both healthy. That would be just unbelievable for Oregon's defense in the terms of speed and versatility that they have there. Uh, I do think that the Bossa-Sewell pairing is really nice because of Bossa's ability to drop back into, into coverage. And Sewell can do it himself, but there were moments last year where teams went at him in the passing attack, namely Fresno State in that opening game. I remember, Eric, you and I, we rewatched the game and we were like, oof, this is, this is something he needs to work on. And I think it got better as the season progressed, and that'll be the next step for him becoming an elite linebacker. But I'm more interested come spring game because we haven't seen this too often in the 11 on 11 portions of how Dan Lanning, you and Tosh Lupoy, how they use them in those simulated pressures. Because if you have Justin Flo and Noah Sewell, you know, head down screaming at the quarterback coming in on a blitz, that's scary. (laughs) That's going to be a very fun sight to see as an Oregon fan. And probably a very terrifying sight to see if you're the opposing quarterback. Um, and I think that's something that Oregon's going to need to take advantage of with the non-obvious elite pass rusher on their defensive line. And maybe Dan Lanning's defense and Tosh Lupoy's defense, maybe that you know, like unearths some hidden talent in Braden Swinson or Mace Funa or Brandon Dorless, and they become an elite pass rusher. But until I see it, I'm going to have, you know, some, some hesitancy to say that they're going to have a lot of guys in the backfield this season. And I think linebacking blitzes Bossa or Sewell or Flo or whoever it may be um, is going to be the hypothetical answer to who can rush the passer really well. You're going to see some safeties come out and blitz too, corners. Mm-hmm. One of the things you look at simulated pressures, they come from all over the place. Um, obviously, as Jared said, the concept being to then drop somebody else into the same coverage area to defend it. So you're, it's kind of just – it's an exotic blitz package. You've seen it more frequently recently. I know um, the Vikings and the NFL do it a lot and, and in college. The big, some of the programs that do it most frequently were Georgia and Baylor, and Oregon has a little flavor from both with Matt Pallage coming over from Baylor and obviously Dan Landing from Georgia. So it'd be interesting to see how they, they maximize and utilize a lot of that stuff. And I'm with, with, I'm with Jared of like, I'm just curious to see kind of how fun this is with, again, the, the variety of looks they present offenses. Because I think it's going to be one of those things where, you know, a lot of people right now are talking about, Lincoln Riley at USC coming in and providing this, you know, exciting new offense to the Pac-12. I think people, I don't know if people are talking enough about what Dan Lanning and company are going to do defensively. Cause I can see this being a deal where you get into the season and it becomes, Holy cow, this defense is awesome. They've got incredible yeah. personnel. They're really creative and offenses are just having a really hard time having any success against them. And, and I, I think that part almost gets lost a little bit is like we're, we're discussed Lincoln Riley as this offensive mastermind. He deserves that and, and credit to him for what he did at Oklahoma and, and previously, I think with Texas tech, but, uh, or as a coordinator, I think, I think what Dan Lanning is capable of doing in Oregon and with some of the pieces in place and just the, the way the operation works. I, I think there's people that maybe need to be kind of reassessing some of the things Oregon's going to be doing that, that will, I think cause some real problems in the fact because I, we have, the league hasn't seen, defenses approach things quite this way and I think it's going to cause some problems especially early on in the season um all right I wanted to get to offensive line here and I'm going to keep this kind of quick because we want to make sure we're getting Jared out here at a decent time uh, I think the thing two things have surprised me the most uh first off I shouldn't say surprise but two things that stood out the most first off 
TJ Bass finished last season at left tackle. He's now at left guard. He told Jared earlier, I guess a week ago, he likes left guard more than left tackle, which means there was probably some kind of interesting back, back and forth perhaps uh, a year ago when he was moved there. I know that was some way out of necessity because of injury, but um, thought that was notable. They've had Stephen Jones at left tackle. I expect, frankly, that Stephen Jones will play left tackle. Um, and you'll have Bass at, at left guard, Forsyth at center, Ryan Walk at right guard, and Malasala Amave Lalu at right tackle. I think that's what it's going to be. And then the other component here is that I don't expect them to rotate because they've said they aren't going to be rotating anywhere near as frequently. That means I don't think you'll see Dawson Jaramillo playing you know, a 25 snaps built in per game. You know, the game script under Mario Cristobal wasn't snap per snap basis, but it was drive per drive basis where you were rotating in a new right guard or you had another player come in at right tackle and rotate somebody else to left tackle. There was a lot of, you know, built in kind of um, scripted movement in terms of the offensive line. And they're not doing that. Adrian Clem has already said that's not a thing that they're choosing to do. That doesn't mean they won't cross train players. And maybe the, the, you know, the starting five I mentioned a moment ago, isn't what the starting five is come start of the season. Maybe TJ Bass ends up back at tackle, but I think what you will see is whoever starts the game left to right is going to be who finishes the game left to right. And I think that can be a really positive thing for this group because it is a really veteran and experienced group that frankly, when it's been healthy, which wasn't really last season, but at times has been, I think, pretty darn good. So I think the big thing for me is is we'll see, uh, you know, more continuity, not even game to game, but just like drive to drive from the offensive line, which doesn't feel like it's a big story, but it kind of is considering what Mario Cristobal and Alex Mirabal did the last couple of years. Yeah, I think one of the storylines in the last couple of weeks has been the depth, is that that might actually be an issue after – uh, Jalen Jeffers and Jonathan Dennis hit the transfer portal. Um, Oregon has been running Jackson Powers Johnson on offensive line and defensive line. I forgot to mention him in my defensive line portion, but that's mostly because I look at him as an offensive lineman. I look at him as a center. I think his the best path for him in a, in, in a successful career would be at offensive lineman. And that's not to say he won't he couldn't be a good defensive lineman. I just think he can be an elite offensive lineman, an elite center with his size and his strength. Um, and then just add in the fact that Oregon's going to be getting Josh Connerly in the summer. Right. That's going to be another huge portion of this. Um, so I think the depth in terms, especially after not be, not rotating all the time, which I've never understood last year. I, I know that's, that's a philosophy. Um, I'm just glad that Adrian Clem came out and said, nah, we're, we're not doing that. Um, and of course they're going to rotate to keep guys healthy, but it's not going to be like a, a hockey line shift where there's five guys on and five guys off. But I think that's the most important thing to me. Um, this is, uh, you could argue that this is the strongest group on Oregon's roster right now, just because of the depth, experience. The, the experience, yep, and the talent that they have. Um, it's got to be nice for Kenny Dillingham to come in here to a brand new school and have, you know, all five starting line, linemen return for like their last season, because that's, that's got to be something that he just will not worry about for the course of it all. All right, Jared. Uh, I think are we, we're doing defensive backs next. I don't know if we ever settled if you we were going corner or safeties. Um, you pick. What do you want to do? Let's do, uh, let's do corners. How about corners? I like corners. Let's do them. Let's do it. Okay. So I think this is a good time to, to start with that. Dante Manning is injured right now. Um, we're not sure with what. We saw him. 
wheeled out of a practice uh, last Thursday. Was that last Thursday? Yeah. Saturday. Uh, Saturday, excuse me. Um, but he's been participating in team activities, uh, going through the rehab group at practice. He has a left leg brace on. Um, Dan Lenning mentioned that it's not a season-ending injury. It's not a long-term injury. So that's really good news out of Oregon's camp because he has been coming out with the first team or the first yeah. group. Him and Christian Gonzalez have been the one and two corners this entire camp. There hasn't been anybody else who's came in there before Dante Manning was injured. Uh, after Dante Manning's injury, it was Darren Barkins who stepped up and played with the first group, um, which is which is noticeable. Um, Barkins is a, you know a redshirt freshman, someone who got a little bit of playing time towards the end of the season last year after DJ James and Michael Wright declared one of them declared for the draft and James transferred to Auburn. Um, he's somebody who I think is probably too skinny, but the fact that he's playing with the first group means that he's somebody who can play in coverage, who's fast enough to cover wide receivers. Um, I think his strength could be a concern because the last practice that we saw in 11 on 11, Byron Cardwell just kind of threw him out of the way to catch a football, which another noticeable thing that we'll get to later. But you know, you look at the second group and Avante Dickerson and, and Jaleel Florence. Um, Jaleel Florence has been with the second group basically this entire spring ball. Um, this position group is is limited. They have a lot of inexperience, um, but they do have a lot of plus side talent. You look at Florence and Dickerson, those are two four-star guys. Uh, Oregon's going to bring in Kamari Terrell and Jaleel Tucker. The other Jaleel, another four-star guy out of Lincoln High School in San Diego, this group has talent. It has a lot of upside. Um, it's just a little thin, and there's not much you can do with that. Um, Jalen Davies transferred out. He's going to UCLA now. Obviously, losing DJ James, who still had another two years of eligibility left, I think. Yeah. Um, he would have been probably a starting cornerback on this group. Um, yeah. But Christian Gonzalez has impressed. Um, we haven't seen him thrown into too many pass coverage situations just because we don't have, we haven't seen a lot of those in general, but physically he looks apart. Um, he and coach Demetrius Martin, the new cornerback coach here at Oregon have a very strong relationship. Um, I feel comfortable about the cornerback room, knowing that Dante Manning at one point will return to full health before the season starts. That's really nice. And then just Demetrius Martin sounds like he's going to be, a hard-nosed coach, um, Dante Manning, talked very highly of him. Uh, he gets um, – is a different type of coaching mentality. He's, he gets really on the players compared to, uh, you know, what Manning has said in the past. Um, it should be a, a fine group. It's got a potential for Manning to be a lockdown corner if he finds out a few things, if Coach Martin can get to him and teach him right, um, which is what I'm looking forward to seeing the most. But um, for now, this is – I would say that's probably one of the biggest question marks on Oregon's defense. Not that there's a lot of them, but this, you know, just might be the only one I have to say. I'm with you on that. Yeah. I think there's concerns here. And I, I will say before we get into the wide receiver tight end group, just um, if there's a setback and, and, or if the, I guess the initial prognosis on Manning's injury is, is maybe too optimistic. And let's say he's going to miss the whole season. Hypothetically, we don't know this. This is again, really hypothetical. I think they would – they should look at the transfer portal and see if they can find another experienced corner if there's somebody out there, yeah. if it mm-hmm. gets to that point. I think you can stand pat now, but 
just something to kind of keep in mind is, is if there's, there could be some deductive reasoning or, you know, that we can logically make here if it gets to June and suddenly someone's in the portal that they take and that might give us an indication that maybe Dante Manning's more on the Sean Dollars or Justin Flo return to practice. I'm not trying to pick on those two players, but those are guys where it seemed like the initial prognosis didn't match the actual timeline to re- for return from injury. Uh, both those guys kind of felt like, hey, they might be playing this. I mean, last year it was Sean Dollars early on in the year. He, oh, yeah, he might be back midway through the season. He never came back. Same thing with Flo. There was some optimism early on. He could be back for maybe postseason. And shoot, we're now into – you know, mid-April, and he's still not a full participant in practice. So um, that would be just a, a, a hypothetical because I, I'm trying to be optimistic. It sounds optimistic about right. demanding, but you just don't know with these things. And, and I would I think if he's not able to go, you've got one guy you really like in Christian Gonzalez and then a lot of uncertainty. You might want to go try to find mm-hmm. that you can provide some experience. I think if, if yeah, if, if someone gets hurt, I think another um, safety plan would be moving Tricrest Bridges back to cornerback, who's now playing a safety, which we'll talk about in a second. But I think that would be the most logistical plan if they don't go after somebody in the transfer portal um, or unless one of the, the incoming freshmen just are suddenly, you know, a second team guy. Um, Bridges going back to corner would probably be the best route for them to take if one of these situations were to happen. And, and Quez and both Matt Palich did say on, on Thursday that they're already starting to kind of work him there a little bit. So I think that's that, that's that's a good point as well to bring up is that it might not even be a, a need for the portal as much as it is just bringing TriQuest back, who's looks really good, by the way, as I think the boundary safety through a couple yeah. weeks of spring. All right. Um, to the wide receiver tight end group, I think just two personnel things that have stood out to me I, uh, that, that have been kind of interesting. I think the first one is that just Dante Thornton's emergence as seemingly the leader of the group. Ty Thompson said that. Um, Dane Lanning was really um, complimentary of how much of, a, of kind of the work he's put in. I think you look at him physically and he said he's, you know, he talked to you, Jared, you spoke with him on Thursday. I did. And he said he'd gained six to seven pounds. Like he up top, especially like he's put on some weight and you can, you know, it's pretty clear. It's not one of those things where you look at the, you know, we don't have added weights quite yet, but you sometimes you look at that and go like, did he, did that person really gain six to seven pounds? Like Dante Thornton, it shows like you can tell on the body. In fact, like, I would have guessed it might be closer to 10 pounds just based yeah. on how he carries it. So yep. I think he's somebody to really watch here um, as potentially, I won't say the number one option, but somebody who's going to be capable of becoming that because physically he just looks the part. I mean, he, he already, I'll say it like physically, he's already probably more impressive than Devin Williams, just from a broad shoulders length, uh, you know, catch radius kind of thing. Obviously there's a lot more to, football than just those attributes but like I'm really high on what we've seen on Dante Thornton albeit in again pretty limited number of actual snaps we've been able to see and I wouldn't be surprised if if you know about a week from now after the spring game we're talking about boy Dante Thornton might be a player to consider for you know the team's leading receiver this year um and then the other one for me is the emergence of Seppin McGee we didn't know this Mm offseason if he was going to be focused on running back or receiver, if you'd be doing both. So far, it's only receiver, although there's been talk about at some point kind of fiddling around with using him as a running back. I mean, the fact that I think we've seen four fastball periods, and I think three of them, he's been with the first team or with the first group over Chris Hudson. Um, and the one time that he wasn't there was when they were in that two tight end package and he was with the second yeah. team with Chris. Like, there has not been, when we've watched in fastball, a slot receiver ahead of Stephen McGee on this hypothetical depth chart. 
And I think that's just like, frankly, surprising because Chris Hudson was the team's leading returning receiver. He finished last year on a tear. And I think there was a lot of sense. And I think this is still going to be true that he could be, he could be the go-to guy. And I, I don't, I'm not changing my uh, expectation for Chris there. I just think that seven through most of the spring has seemingly put himself in a position to, to work with kind of the top group offensively. And that's been a bit of surprise. I, I, I continue to be really enthusiastic about the kind of player he is in space because I think he is an absolute game changer, similar to DeAnthony Thomas. I know that was the comparison out of high school. It's unfair to maybe put those attachments and expectations on him, but like, I think you'll see some stylistic similarities at least with them. I, I think those two players as entering their second year with the program are, are guys just to really monitor because receiver, we talked about it going into the off season about kind of the need for some players to step up because Oregon lost five really highly regarded guys or guys they played a lot, at least last year. And early on in spring, or I guess now through midway of spring, we've kind of seen between McGee and Thornton. And I know Franklin's also been a mainstay with the first team. Those three second year guys seem to have really kind of cemented themselves as really valuable assets in the passing game. And I think that is really important. I just realized the tight end thing. I don't have a ton here other than to say like, it's been fun seeing Patrick Herbert at least be a participant in some parts of practice. And I don't know how much he contributes, but I I think he might be a guy just to kind of monitor when we get closer to the season. I think he's still working his way back, but right now it's really been Ferguson, Matavau and, and Webb with that kind of, that are kind of in the conversation um, for early playing time, but I wouldn't be surprised to see Herbert once he gets healthy, kind of reinsert himself into that conversation. So there's my wide receiver and tight end thoughts. Like went a little light on tight ends because again, we're working with some time constraints here, Jared. I want to make sure Jared isn't uh, getting too. Uh, oh, you're good. We, we got time. We got an hour and a half till 2 PM. Okay. It's a home game. Are you, you're going to the game? No, it's an away game. I just oh. get to watch it from my house. Oh, then, then Jared, we don't care then. I thought you had to get to the car in 20 <laughs> minutes to get over there. No, 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 no. no. Oh, Please, then, continue. Oh, then let me. Then, then I have five more minutes on receiver tight end. No, I'm just kidding. I don't. Um, <laughs> I got 20, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but, but uh, no, then, then actually let's, let's carry on a little bit more on the tight end because I, I covered the two things at receiver I wanted to touch. But just like I, I think the thing that um, has stood out with the tight ends is just the way these freshmen's bodies have changed. Um, these freshmen now to sophomores, and I'm talking about Ferguson and Madavau. Uh, Madavau was already a big freaking guy, but mm-hmm. watching him yesterday in, in some blocking drills, like he can command, he could command some guys. Like he can he can move some people around out there. They were working on a drill where um, a tight end or receiver blocked a linebacker uh, with a, a screen pass being thrown to the running back, and then a safety or a corner coming up and helping. And Matavau was really good in those situations. And I actually thought Ferguson was pretty good in the situation. Spencer Webb, maybe not quite as good, but like, I, I just think both Ferguson and Matavau, you look at them physically and, and they've definitely changed their body types a little bit. And I'm pretty optimistic about not just in 2022, but 23 and, and maybe beyond, because I don't know how long you're going to have both of them. Like Oregon is pretty set at tight end with those two guys at the top. And I yeah. trying to overlook Spencer Webb. I mentioned Patrick Herbert, Cam McCormick. We have to mention is still with the team trying to work himself into a position to help. And I think that's so admirable the way he's kind of continued to work. This is like his, I think sixth or seventh year with the program. Um, but like between Ferguson and Madaval, I, I think you have to feel awesome about this group. And if Oregon's able to go out um, in this 2020 
2023 class and and land Riley Williams. Riley Williams? I got the right first name. Riley Williams, yep. Cor- Corbin's younger brother. Um, I sometimes I get those confused. But if they're able to get Riley Williams, an in-state kid who's, I think, a top 100 recruit, like you're going to look up and feel really, really good about the state of this position group. And even if they don't land Williams, I, I kind of, I think you probably feel decent based upon, um, you know, his, his family's history with the program. You're still set. Cause I really like both those two guys going forward. Yeah. Just to quickly touch on the tight ends. Um, it, it's been pretty clear to me that both Matavau and Ferguson have passed up web in the proverbial depth chart. Um, I, agree. I, I think that's probably the right move too. Uh, I'm really high on what Terrence Ferguson could do this season in an offense that's a little more pass friendly. Um, don't tell Ryan Walk that because Ryan <laughs> Walk will he will let you know that this is a run heavy offense. Um, but it's clear. Can you explain uh, that to the listeners because they might be totally perplexed. Why? Why, why that's why I laughed the ab- way I did. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. So this was after practice one day, and uh, we were interviewing Ryan Walk and. There was a question that was asked um, just about you know how he feels about uh, in his pass protection for a very pass heavy offense, and uh, <laughs> Ryan Ryan like- Walk was did not like that and was very quick to say that this this offense is still a run run oriented offense and that will be, they will be running the ball quite often but they do pass it more. Um, so <laughs> it was uh, it was a tough day for the reporter who asked that question, which was not me. Um, thankfully. <laughs> Thank but, you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, Ferguson, I think, could have, have a nice little season here if they if they do use a tight end, how it has been looking. Um, I'm really, really interested to see that two tight end set with Maliki and Terrence Ferguson. Um, I think that could that could cause a lot of issues. Ferguson is obviously the deep ball threat or the deeper pass threat. He mentioned that um, before coming to Oregon in high school, he was basically like a six, six wide receiver which would suck if you're some high school kid in Colorado trying to guard that. But when with uh, Maliki, you know, he's somebody who can, honestly, I would not want to tackle if he gets an open space and has a lot of speed going on him. Um, Like Eric mentioned, he's a large kid. He's all of six foot five, 250, 255 pounds. Um, And then really quickly on the wide receivers, uh, the seven McGee impact is, is huge. Um, I really like Chris Hudson. I think he's a very capable playmaker. Um, he's somebody who's really reliable, which is really important in wide receivers. Um, I think we saw that towards the end of the year last season with Devin Williams. He finally became like a reliable piece of the offense, mostly because, well, he had to with injuries and transfers. But seven, if he's able to be out there and is healthy all the time, um, he can be electric. And I'm very interested to see how this offense is going to to use him, whether it's out of the backfield or in screens or honestly a vertical threat. If you get a linebacker on him, that's a complete mismatch. Um, Dante Thornton and Troy Franklin are still going to be the, the one and two, I think. Um, Troy has had a quiet spring, but every time they go into a, in a fastball period, he's making a play. Yep. He's catching a ball over the middle. Uh, he's gaining separation. We haven't seen a lot of Dante Thornton in the spring spring little little fastball sections making a play or something like that. But like Eric mentioned, he physically looks apart. He is all of six foot five. He's probably now two hundred and ten pounds. He was listed at one ninety five last year. And I think the six to seven pounds of muscle weight is probably really conservative. He really looks like he's added at least ten to fifteen more pounds onto his frame. Um 
I'm, I'm really excited to see what he does, especially when it comes from being a six foot five guy who, who mentioned that this offense is going to be uh, more vertically inspired and passing the ball down the field some more. So uh, I would look forward to that if I were an Oregon fan. What, one last thing. I know we were staying here too long, but uh, uh, they're going to use an H back and maybe even a fullback in Kenny Dillingham's mm-hmm. offense. And I get kind of, you get a little, just a little bit giddy about the idea of like Maliki Matavau not just being used as a blocker, you know, with an extension off the line of scrimmage, like, you know, left or right of the tackle, one of the tackles, but with also him maybe as a, in a lead blocking position um, in front of a Byron Cardwell or a Sean Dollars, like just the ability. I mean, like, I mean, frankly, if DJ Johnson was still on offense, I imagine Lord. trying to defend <laughs> that, like no bueno. Oh, thank you. I'll no, good. Um, but that's just another, that's just another thing to keep an eye on is, is, um, is kind of some of these personnel packages. I don't know how much we'll see in the spring game, but like, they're going to have, they're going to utilize some of these personnel pieces a little differently than than we've seen at Oregon a long time where you haven't really had anybody in one of those roles shoot probably since Mike Blotty was here. Uh, and that was like almost two decades ago. So, um, (laughs) yeah, I, I just, I just think that's another notable thing before we jump into I think a group, by the way, Jared, we're segueing now into safety, that we had a lot of – I made a lot of projections about who would be back there. And I went 0 for 2 with who's kind of in line right now to be the starting safeties because it's not the guys I really thought because I had one guy playing at corner and another guy being like second or third string safety. But as you'll tell us in a second, like it's been two guys sort of seemingly kind of uh, separating from the pack um, to be kind of the first two guys. Yeah, and those two – players would be Triquest Bridges and Brian Addison. Those have been the first group deep safeties every single time there's been an 11 on 11 portion. Um, And I'll mention that Steve Stevens is still working back from an injury. He seems to be a full participant. He's not taking part in the 11 on 11 portions of the practice. Um, But I, I would imagine that we should see him in the spring game and that by the start of the season, I don't think there's going to be any cause for concern if he can play. But that's Jared on that really quick. Matt Pallage said, "Well, we're we're not watching these parts." But Matt Pallage did say that um, on Thursday's practice, they've been ramping up his uh, uh, involvement in these competition drills when, when we're not watching. But Steve had about 30 reps in those um, on Thursday, so I, I think you're right in terms of I think he's going to be someone who can take part in the spring game in some capacity. And I think he'd be the one of the guys who could potentially beat out one of those two players for a starting spot. I know Steve started last year, um, was came off the bench, was a second stringer to start the season before injuries happened. Um, but he's certainly a capable player and someone who can who could fill that role if, in a need be situation. But for right now, Bridges and Addison are the two deep safeties. Um, we have Jamal Hill and Bennett Williams who are rotating between the star safety positions. Um, I think that's a really positive development if you're Oregon, just that you have two very, very, very capable players coming in and out of the game at star safety. Um, Jamal Hill got a lot of time last year and really improved on the final stretch of the season after Bennett Williams went out due to injury. Um, Bennett looks to be in good shape. He's a full participant. There's no worries. He hasn't, he hasn't not participated this entire, this entire spring camp. Um, and, you know, you kind of look at – you continue down the depth chart of, of who's coming in at safety. Uh, we have the return of J.J. Greenfield, uh, which is a very welcome development as a walk-on in the safety position. Um, he's beginning some run with the second group already, which I think is really important 
Um, safety was a position that I thought really lacked depth. You had a solid, like four or five players, but I know we, we last year with all the injuries that we saw, you need more than that. And I think JJ Greenfield helps in that. Uh, another depth piece is number 30, Donovan Dalton, a University of Hawaii transfer. He on Hawaii's roster was listed at six foot four, 200 pounds. Um, that's a big safety and he's a deep safety. That's where he's been playing. He's been with the second team a lot or second group. Um, he's somebody who theoretically in a pinch could get some real playing time for Oregon and you get him as a transfer uh, where it's unclear if he's a scholarship or not, but that's a significant addition just as a potential PWO preferred walk on him and JJ Greenfield. Um, after that, it kind of kind of slows down, but you still have Jonathan Flo, who's now a defensive back instead of being a linebacker. Then um, you have some some other options there as well. But I think for the the first five or six, seven guys in your rotation, that's pretty good. The the one other name that we haven't seen, and unfortunately we haven't seen him a lot the last two years because of injuries, Damon David. Um, yes, who yeah. I think everybody was raving about last fall camp, but then he dealt with an injury that cost him like the first half of the season about, and then he came in and played a little bit and it kind of mixed results. And now he's dealing with what looks to be a shoulder injury. Like he's had his arm in a sling for mm-hmm. parts of practices. Um, he won't, I would be stunned if he takes part in the spring game. Cause I think he was still in a sling as of Thursday. If Jared, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, he hasn't been in a sling in a while. Has he not? Okay. Maybe, maybe I'm no. wrong. So, 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 so maybe he's closer, but I, I just, that's a name just to monitor for fall in this conversation um, because I could hypothetically see him being somebody to rise the ranks and challenge for a starting spot along with Steve Stevens. And I know one of the things Bennett Williams talked about was cross training between the nickel spot and one of the deep safety, I think it's the boundary uh, safety spots. There's maybe a possibility of if Jamal really locks down the star spot, Bennett moving back there. And then you've got, between Steve Stevens, you know, Bennett Williams, uh, Tricos Bridges, Brian Addison, and Damon David. Now you've got a huge contingent of guys back there um, because right now it has felt cut and dry between Bridges and Addison being those guys. But there's mm-hmm. potential this could get a little bit more – the waters could get more muddied here, I think, once we get into fall just because there's a lot of bodies that are – Trey John Williams I haven't mentioned. I would He's an enrollee that will come in in the, in the summer. Um, but there's just more names, I think, that are kind of maybe going to file into this conversation along with some of the ones you mentioned um, before. Like, Oregon went from being, I think, at safety, there were some question marks, to now, like, there's a kind of a surplus of guys here, especially when you introduce Greenfield and Dalton, who, by all accounts, are, like, basically two guys not on scholarship who are very capable players. Yeah, and I, and I should note that both Addison and, and Bridges have been pretty darn good in practice. Yeah. Um, Addison, on the first... 11 on 11 portion that we were able to see this spring picked off Ty Thompson in the, in the red zone. Nice little one handed with his left hand interception. Um, Trek was bridges. We were watching a hitting drill uh, the other day on uh, <laughs> yesterday at practice. Yeah. And uh, he, <laughs> there are points where he looks like he is shot out of a cannon and it's just straight vertical down the field and dropping his, his shoulder into somebody. Um, I think it was on Von Reams, number 87. Uh, if this were, if that were a full tackle period, that would have been probably the biggest hit that we've seen at spring practice so far. It, it, he, he let up, but he still got a little bit of Von Reams. And it, it was, it was one of those uh, where everybody kind of turns and looks at that hit. So 
Um, I think, I think bridges is probably, I would say honestly, a more natural fit to be a safety. I think it was a, it was a good attempt from the Oregon staff last year to try to convert him into a cornerback just because of his length and his speed. But I think his hitting prowess is being wasted at corner when it could be being used at safety. And I think that's exactly what Dan Lanning and staff have in mind with him. Yeah. I'm, I'm just think the body types you think about if you had both bridges and, and Addison back there covering space, both those guys are like six, three to six, five, really long range. Mm-hmm. athletes. like, I think that's really attractive, especially when you think about how aggressive some of the stuff will be schematically um, to have that kind of coverage and that depth of, I guess, range in the back end. Um, I think that's a good fit with, uh, because you're good, the front seven and even some of the corners, even some of these guys are going to be firing upfield to get after the quarterback and throw looks at them. You can have some length and size in the back end. I think that's that that fits pretty nicely with what they're trying to do. Um, all right, last offensive position group we get to, and then we're going to get to special teams, my favorite. But running back, and I don't know how much there really is to get to here, just because it's three players. I think the thing that I, I here's what I'll say: the thing I've been most encouraged with is just that Sean Dollars looks good. Like he he doesn't look like he's hampered very by injury. Very very good. I mean, he looks, frankly, I think Byron Cardwell had a quote earlier this week saying something to the effect of, like, it doesn't look like he messed his knee up, and he did. I mean, he missed all of last season. He was sidelined and unable to take part in practice for the better part of a year, uh, maybe a little more than that, with this injury. And so to see him back in spring and be running with the ones one day, the twos another day, um, what have you, like, I, I just think that's really encouraging. And he's made some plays when we watched. You know, he had that long wheel route, completion a couple weeks ago with the ones that would have been like a 60 yard touchdown and I I just think there was a little bit of concern going into spring of okay we everybody likes Byron Cardwell Sean Dollars is coming off of a serious injury and at this point you didn't even have knowing no Whittington the Western Kentucky transfer in the mix and you're kind of going like so it's Byron Cardwell and then what and I think you feel pretty good now through 10 practices going Cardwell's looked the part, Sean Dollars looked the part, and no, Whittington's looked the part. And so the, the, the depth there is not what it needs to be. Jordan James will enroll this summer. Um, they have in Aaron Smith and LaVon Llewellyn two, I think, walk-on running backs who are very capable as well. I'm not going to suggest that either of them – You know, your preference is probably they don't play hardly at all during the season. But, like, if they were to be thrust in there, they're, they're not bad players. I mean, Smith – frankly, Aaron Smith's the most physically impressive running back on the roster. And honestly, like – Jared, you probably can't think of too many guys just, frankly, more imposing physically than him on the roster, period. Like, I mean, he's – Especially he, not a running back, yeah. Just cut up, man. I mean, so yeah. so there, there's some guys there. But I, I just think the question going into spring had kind of been like, what, what, what's, what do you have after Byron Cardwell? And through 10 practices between Dollars and Whittington, some of the walk-ons, I, I think you feel a little bit – you feel better about where things are at than you did just a couple weeks ago. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, the, like you mentioned, the positional depth isn't necessarily there. They probably need to add another one or two scholarship running backs, but from what they have, it, it's looked incredibly optimistic. Uh, Sean Dollars, I've been a big fan of. It's just a shame that he's been you know, barred by injury from being able to play. Now that he looks to be and is acting as if he's 100% healthy, uh, it's been really impressive. Um, he certainly has the burst, the agility, the, the lateral mobility to try and, and become a number one running back. Um, I think Whittington can can really provide just some overall depth. Um, I think Cardwell and and uh, Dollars are the clear favorites to be like the one and two running back. 
Um, Cardwell has been no slouch either. He's gotten a lot of praise from Dan Lanning. Right. Um, and after his performance last season, there's no reason to think that he couldn't be a number one back. I think um, it's it's just a different running back room than it has been for, what, like five years now with, with Oregon and no <laughs> C.J. Verdell and Travis Dye. It's felt like a decade, really. But with Verdell going to the draft and, and Dye down at USC, uh, you know, it's an opportunity for these guys to step up. And I think it's a really good situation when you have Byron Cardwell and uh, Sean Dollars in that position to step up. Um, Jordan James is going to enroll, just like Eric said. I think he's very similar in in overall, like how do I put this, like physique as everybody in this running back room. Um, he probably is a really good cross combination of somebody like Sean Dollars and Noah Whittington. Um, I think that's like the ideal running back for this Oregon offense. Um, it was also interesting. I should quickly point this out. Noah Whittington comes from Western Kentucky. And if you don't know, Western Kentucky's quarterback, whose name I don't know, um, set like basically every single passing record last year. They were not a very run-heavy offense. They were huge in passing. But Noah Whittington talked about this in an interview I had with him. Um, he's been teaching Byron Cardwell and Sean Dollars a lot about pass protection because that was like his job at Western Kentucky was to protect the quarterback from blitzers. And so I think that could be something to keep an eye on in terms of a passing down situation with Noah Whittington in there. Um, because when you're, when you're passing or when you're pass protecting for a guy who broke every collegiate record from a quarterback perspective, you have to be pretty good at that. Um, and I think that's a very welcome addition, especially in this offense who theoretically should be passing the ball more. It's a good point, Jared. I actually wrote a little bit of that on my story. I know Whittington, which is up on the site this morning on deck territory, uh, Western Kentucky averaged 433 yards passing per game. Um, and 67% of their plays were passed were, were resulted in pass attempts. And that also could mean some of those were run or pass calls that resulted in a scramble that doesn't count. So like, probably close to 70% of the time they try to throw the football. So you're, you're right. That could be really notable. I'm not saying he's miles and miles ahead of the other two in pass protection, but if he's better in that spot, I think he could be someone you see in, in clear passing downs an awful lot. And, and as the coaches have said, he's, he's a valuable asset as a pass catcher too. So um, mm. I could see a scenario where it's Byron Cardwell and Sean Dollars primarily as first and down, first and second down running backs. And Winton plays a lot on third and, and fourth if you're going to go for it. I could also see a thing, though, where Cardwell, who I know both uh, Lachlan and Lanning, love his versatility as a pass catcher. And, and we saw him, we mentioned it earlier on the, the Darren Barkins, where, where Jared said you could kind of see Barkins' lack of heft, I guess, if you will, yes. show up. Um, Cardwell was lined up, like, out wide as a receiver. Um, like, he wasn't out of the backfield. So, like, I think you're going to see Cardwell be utilized in a lot of different ways, and he's got the skill set capable – of doing that last thing we're going to talk about is special teams here. Oh, one, one, one sec. Last, last thing about running backs. But um, we, we mentioned this earlier, but the idea of seven McGee being in the backfield for certain situations, I think could legitimately be a real possibility. I think it should be a real possibility. Um, and I think that's really just going to be a certain package that they're going to send out there. But I think you can add his name as like, maybe a fill-in. I think if somebody is injured on the running back room, I think Seven McGee immediately moves back. And I think you'll see a lot of him from the running back role. But as a wide receiver, I think you can see him lining up out of the backfield a lot um, just because of what Dan Lanning and Teddy Dillingham have said before. Good, yeah, good catch there. If, you know, because the numbers aren't 
as you said, like you could in theory, this along with corner is probably the position group that if there was a, I guess a transfer portal edition would be the least surprising. Mm-hmm. I, I actually think you feel pretty decent right now with the numbers, especially if with the idea that McGee is somebody who could fill in here in a pinch. And, and frankly, I think you could probably get creative with a lot of this stuff in terms of how you want to utilize receivers out of the backfield. We've seen a decent amount of uh, handoffs to receivers on, you know, the equivalent of the rounds. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's something to kind of keep an eye on. All right. Now, now we're going to get the special teams to wrap this up. I, I wanted to start with a thing that is really kind of uh, maybe, I don't want to say boring. <laughs> it was a great way to, to segue into a, a segment, <laughs> but like that is really kind of um, into the, into the details, which is, I found this really interesting. I'm going to write something probably next week once I talk with Joe Lorig, the special teams coordinator. But Matt Pallage, um, I asked him a little bit about just what makes what they're doing different on special teams. And I, I thought this was like kind of notable and, and kind of funny. And I wanted to – I told Jared this, and you, you, we both got kind of excited by it. it it's that it, typically, according to Pallage, when you do have 15 minutes on special teams or whatever it is per day, it's with everybody in the special teams room or group, I should say, who are on, you know, who are involved in different special teams units in one room together, and that kind of limits how much um, hands-on maybe training or discussions you can get from somebody who's leading your groups. So like for example, what Pallage was saying is, you know, if you are the long snapper and the holder, you're only going to get a couple minutes with somebody who's in charge of that kind of thing in that 15 minutes, it's primarily going to be a group conversation, but what they're doing now and what Lorig is bringing from Penn state where he's been a really, really successful special teams coordinator is they're basically breaking it into special teams position groups. And there are six or seven different rooms that are open when they're talking about punting. You know, there's a long snapping room. There's the punters room. There's the gunners rooms. There's the right guards, right tackles have a room, the left. All these guys have different rooms where they're getting individual instruction from a position coach. So Matt Pallage is saying he's working with the right guards and right tackles at times. He called them group eight, I think. Um, don't, I don't ask me exactly what that number means, but like he has certain six to eight guys who are in his group where he's then going, here's what you're doing during this situation. So you really are devoting not only more time, or, or I shouldn't say more time, you're not even devoting um, more of a focus on special teams, but you're being a lot more, I think you're managing your time in just much more efficient ways where, as Pallage said, like previously, you know, like if, if, if you were in charge of, because it's not unusual, I guess, to have, a position coach working with the special teams on certain parts of it, but to have your own position room separate from that, where you're like taking full ownership of it is pretty unique. And I, I, again, I don't want to be overly critical of the previous staff here because we, and we have before already, but like this just feels innovative and different. And because of college and Laura, college was also the special teams coordinator at Baylor and Baylor had great special mm-hmm. teams. Like, I think there's room to be really optimistic about, the improvements you could see from special teams. And I know, again, I kind of got deep into the weeds there with some stuff that I think is pretty exciting and some folks probably don't care about, but like, I just think you're, you're hearing kind of new and innovative approaches to how Oregon is handling its special team stuff that is different than just, you know, Hey, we prefer to have, you know, cause like the Bobby, I mean, again, I, I guess I'm doing it. You'd ask Bobby Williams. Do it. Go for it. You'd ask Bobby Williams, what were you doing new this spring? And it would be, or what, what, what kind of stands out about special teams this spring? And it would be, you know, we want our return guys to be, be good at catching the football. 
And I'm not saying he didn't know more, but it felt kind of special teams sounded so boring when they talked about it. And just hearing Pallage, and we're going to get to speak with Lorig next week, talk about special teams. You can tell there's like a passion and ingenuity here that just was completely absent from the previous staff that was handling it. So I know I, I try not to be too reductive to the previous staff, but the stats bear it out. Like Oregon was terrible. And we talked about this, I think on a show earlier this week on Monday or Wednesday, they were terrible on special teams and coverage the last yeah. four or five years. And it's been pretty bad consistently. Oregon should not be a team that is, is middle to back end of the PAC 12 in special teams. Oregon has better athletes across the board typically, and that should show up on the field and it hasn't recently. And I think you should be encouraged, or at least I feel encouraged in, in talking and hearing a little bit about some of the innovative ways that they're approaching kind of everything with special teams. Special teams is such an underrated part of football, uh, just in general. Like when you have a good special teams unit, nobody when – you're, when you're a general fan who's watching the game, you don't realize that it's a really good special team unit because they don't do anything wrong. And that helps yeah. a lot of teams save games. It helps a lot of teams win games. When you don't give up punt returns for – not even a touchdown, I'm saying. But the opening field position for a team on a punt return, if you get it at the 12-yard line compared to the 42-yard line, that's a big difference in probably the outcome of the game. And that happened far too often last year where Oregon's special teams unit was just – it just wasn't good. It just flat out wasn't good. It was good in 2019 when they had, you know, Hockey Woods and was able to be a real gunner and get down the field. And they had the better athletes. They had the better punters at the time. Uh, It just – you know, in the last two years, it just hasn't been there. And again, you know, I've mentioned this a bunch of times, but being able to walk into practice and after the warmups and see them go directly into a special teams drill, that's a, that's a good overall feeling as somebody who's watching the team and understanding that this is where they need to improve. And they, they are visually, like I can see it right now, that they, they are working on trying to improve that area of the team. And again, I'm, I'm 100% sure that the previous staff worked on special teams and with that we just didn't see it during our portion of the of the practice that we were able to watch I mean every team works on special teams I'm not saying that they just said ah well you 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 guys special teams go um but you heard it from Camden Lewis he talked about how in these situational drills you know the the field goal kicking was up like three or four times a practice and obviously kickers are always you know, trying to, or always working on their game and always working on their kicking abilities. But it seems to me that the staff has a lot more, um, that they're a lot more particular about how their special teams are done. Like Eric said, they're a lot more innovative and they really care about how their special teams are with Joe Lorig and with Matthew Pallage. Um, I'm, I'm excited to see that uh, just because it's such an, undervalued and underappreciated and underrated portion of a football team. If Oregon can get this out, that's something that they don't have to really um, quote unquote, like worry about Um, as far as personnel for special teams. I'll just switch it over to that. Um, Good. We basically kind of had two punt returning groups, one off of a machine and then one off of an actual punter. Um, Basically for the punt returns off an actual punter, uh, it's been something of Seven McGee, Josh Delgado, Chris Hudson, Noah Whittington, Chase Coda, and every once in a while, Sean Dollars. Um, that's been the the primary people who have been back there. Um, usually the first stringer, just going back in my notes, usually the first stringer is always Chris Hudson, followed by Seven McGee, and then Josh Delgado in terms of punt returns. 
Um, as the other group off the punt machine, it's just kind of a combination of running backs and Christian Gonzalez and Darren Barkins. So I'm not sure what that means for kick returns. Um, we did see some shortened kick returns in the last uh, spring practice that we watched on Thursday where the first group out was Byron Cardwell and Christian Gonzalez, followed by Sean Dollars and Noah Whittington. And then it was Darren Barkins and Aaron Smith. Um, I'm not sure what to put into that. We'll see in the spring game more than likely who the actual return men are. Um, but again, getting Chris Hudson or Seven McGee back there, it's a really good idea. I think, I think that's going to pay off in the long run. Yeah, I think, which, I think punt return, I handicap it at, Hudson and Dollar, or sorry, Hudson and McGee are at the top, and then yeah, and at kick return, I don't really know because as as Jared said, we haven't seen as much, and when we do see it, it seems like it's almost like more of a drill than anything else. Well, they're like yeah, and they're almost kicking to the typically they're almost working on like squib kicks to the up guys, like the up backs. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. it's like it's almost like are those people placeholders as much as they are because you have quote unquote the real returners, the punt returners that Jared's talking about working on the other side of the field on punts part of me thinks like maybe like it may, maybe it's I mean Hudson and McGee as the team's kick returner would be dynamic and maybe that's what you see out there and what we're seeing is more of just like the running backs don't have anything to do during this drill so they're going to be the deep guys I don't know that's more hypothetical than anything else but I do I do feel comfortable saying I think like Hudson and McGee would be, make a ton of sense back there we've already seen Hudson do it a little bit I think McGee returned maybe one punt last year um, but th- those those players make sense. And then just one last thought here before we wrap up the show and, and, and kind of end it. Um, getting back to the innovative nature of the way they conduct practice and what Camden Lewis said about three kickoff or sorry three field goals in practice. I don't know how much actual field goal kicking they're doing now, but the thing I thought was pretty cool, and again gets back to just kind of thinking about things differently, is it sounds like and I think this is pretty standard practice in the past when you were to, you know, practice field goal kicks, you knew you were going to go out and kick like 40, 45, 50 yarders. They're now doing it built into the competition periods. So you're in 11 on 11 and it's a two minute drill or a third down drill. And rather than just capping the drill and saying, okay, you're now kicking it from the 30 yard line on the right hash. It's, it's now, this is where the ball is. This is where the sequence is. And there's no predictability, so you have to go out there. And as a player, as a Camden Lewis, as a Carson Battles and a Tom Snee, those are the guys snapping and holding, you know, for, for Camden. There is a process of, of going through the mental like, checklist to prepare for the kick of, okay, this is where I'm standing, this is my steps, and, and, and just kind of going through the process like you would in a game to prepare for a kick. Um, so I, I, just those kind of small things, I know they sound really minuscule, I think these are really good early indications about special teams. And I know we did a decent amount of talking about special teams, um, but that's because I think this is all feels like pretty different. Like it, it doesn't like, I know it's we all talked, new. Yeah. I mean, we talked about how I think we're going to see new innovative things on in offense and defense. I think special teams might be potentially like an area where you really see huge improvements day one, because Joel Oreg at Penn state, go look at the numbers, like top 10 in basically every, special teams cat. I mean, Oregon probably has one of the three to five best special teams coordinators in Joe Lorg. And it's going to be something I think that pays dividends. And I think it'll pay dividends right away. Like I wouldn't be surprised if 
we come away from the spring game. I don't know how much actual special teams they'll do or kind of how it'll be built. And I imagine they'll, they'll make an effort to make it feel like it simulates a real game atmosphere and a real game situations. I wouldn't be surprised if one of the takeaways is like, man, special teams look pretty good. I wouldn't be surprised either. These are just a bunch of, of little things that all add up. I think Lanning has said this multiple times. It's like one plus one plus one and all these things add up. And this is one of those plus ones here. And if Oregon is able to, to nail this down onto their team, again, I think that's really beneficial. It's a thing they don't have to worry about. They're, they're not going to have a replication of what happened in Utah last year. Um, and I, those things are just so undervalued. Um, and with Lorig and Powledge, I think that's a really, really, really good uh, special teams group of minds right there. And Eric, you'd mentioned just how, how good Lorig has been at Penn State. I think that was a huge hire for Dan Lanning. Uh, I think it's just going to be monumental in terms of where Oregon special teams can go from where they were to where they could be. Um, and again, I think they have the guys to do it. I think they have the athletes to have a good special teams unit, whether that's on the return or on the defensive side of it. Um, I think they're pretty much set up there. All right. I think that's going to, that's going to wrap our show. I probably spoke a little longer than we had talked about because this is like a 70 minute podcast. And I know Jerry pitched this as doing 30 minutes when we were texting about it earlier. Um, so it wasn't going to happen. Yeah, it wasn't going to happen. I don't know why I even expected we would go 30 minutes when we're talking about like 10 position groups. Like there's no, way we're going to talk three minutes per group. So this was always probably bound to happen. Um, and then when I got the reassurance that you didn't have to drive to PK park, I decided we were just going to talk forever. So, um, some of the groups probably got a little <laughs> more attention than others because I was, I was, uh, released from the shackles of, of a time commitment, I guess. Um, but I think this was hopefully, hopefully a good, like kind of preview of what you're going to maybe see for those coming down on the spring game on the 23rd. That's at 1 PM Autzen stadium. They're still doing the food drive for food for Lane County. I would encourage you to bring, um, canned and, and dried food those kind of things are, are really helpful for the community I know people are struggling right now so I, I, I'll give you just a little pitch of if you do make it down for the spring game and you and you've got an opportunity to pick up some baked beans or whatever it is and put it in a you know bring it down to the can drive I know that'll go a long way to helping a lot of people for this podcast though that is where we're going to conclude it um, for Jared Mack this is Eric Scopel thank you for listening to this episode of the Ots and Isles podcast we'll be back on Monday I believe Matt will be back for that show um, hopefully he gets himself healthy and, and ready for what will be the final week before the spring game next week. So uh, thank you for listening, folks. Talk to you later. Peace.